Oh, no. Yo, it worked. There we go. Look at that. What do you know? Well, hey, family, what up? This is uh, Preston. I got a, uh, I would love to say good buddy, but I don't really know him quite yet. But uh, maybe this is just early days. Uh, this is my uh, friend, Michael, who is a co-host of the Addictionary Podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself, my man? Hey guys, uh, yeah, my name is Mike Wilson, and uh, otherwise known as Sweets out here with the uh, with the podcasting. But um, thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, um, I, I I'm glad that this came about really quickly. I actually listen to uh, your guys' podcast, the Addictionary Podcast, quite often, and have gone back and forth with uh, with Megan and and um, have her scheduled. I think she's going to be on my on this one here, and I'm going to be on on your guys, but. Um, I was well, just to, to your... just to clarify, it's actually her podcast. Gotcha. Um, and I'm just the producer, so I'm the I'm the uh, disembodied voice in the background. Ooh. Hey, well, <laughs> well, th- thanks for clarifying. Although the one that gave me the idea was uh, yesterday. It was just you and her uh, talking mm-hmm. back and forth, and I just um, I, you know I always hear you chime in, and so uh, um, just felt like you had a ton of knowledge and wanted you to come on and and. Uh, you know, shoot the stuff with me and, and help me learn some stuff. So I'll tell you what, why don't you, uh, why don't you give me a little bit of your, your story, um, okay. and how you, uh, how you got to where you're at and, um, gotcha. and, uh, let the people know who you are. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Cause sure. I know I just heard you say, shoot the stuff instead of, instead of what I would normally say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm so down. You, a... you get that little cursing, not, not a big deal. I, I usually, uh, Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, yeah, we ain't got to keep it clean, but go on. Okay. I just, hey, I just want to make sure if you're asking me for my story, it can get a little, uh, you know, a little funny sometimes, but yeah, right on. Um, so I'm 43 years old and, uh, you know, the way, the way I identify as a, is as a uh, retired professional addict. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's less about, you know, being a person in long-term recovery or sober for me, I'm retired, you know what I mean? And, and it's, uh, I, I use the word professional because, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours and all that stuff. I mean, I, I did my due, uh, my due diligence there. I, I did a lot of work. I put a lot of hours of practice into uh, living the life that comes with addiction, not just being physically addicted to substances. I mean, I embodied it totally. I, I used it. I sold it. I lived it. I breathed it. Um, spent a lot of years in prison for it. And, you know, through all of that, um, you know, I, I had a lot of pain, just like everybody, uh, you know, doing doing drugs and drinking hurts, uh, it hurts your soul, it hurts your body, it hurts your relationships, and it just it hurt all around. So, you know, I went through all that pain. And, you know, I, I, I look back to, um, you know, I just recently wrote a blog, I haven't published it yet, but, you know, about teenage marijuana use, like all the way back to when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. And, uh, you know, I was... I was kind of playing around with the power that, that drugs brought to me. You know, I was a powerless little teenage kid. I was, I was awkward in my own skin. I was, you know, socially confused, trying to figure out where I fit, what group, uh, what I was going to do with my life. So, you know, when I found drugs in general, but pot specifically at that age, it just, it just had so much power in my life. It was, uh, you know, it, it took the edge off of uh, uh, the sharp edges of life. It took the the, the bite out of it. Um, you know, it, it added elements to my my teenage years socially. It it, it helped. You know, it did, it did cool stuff for me. And, you know, as I got further and further into drugs, it was it was more clear that that was 
that was something I could control, or at least that's what I thought. Um, right. You know, I could keep it in my pocket. I could carry it around with me. It gave me, you know, people wanted to talk to me or wanted to spend time with me because I had that or I could get that. Um, and, you know, soon enough, that time in my life when I was supposed to be developing life skills and figuring out how to grow up and, and deal with the adult world. Instead, I was using drugs to fill the gaps, like so much so that I could without being like, Hey, you want to go do something? Let's go grab some weed first, or let's go get some Coke first. It was, I didn't know how to have those conversations without including drugs. So, you know, I have a, uh, the, the, the middle of my story is probably the same or similar to most everybody else that's gone through what I've gone through. Uh, lots of ups and downs, lots of ins and outs, um, you know, lots of uh, lots of attempts, lots of, quote, failures. Um, and I put failures in quotes mainly because, uh, you know, I kept failing at the wrong thing. I kept trying to stop doing drugs and be normal. And right. that's what I was failing at. I wasn't failing at recovery. I was failing at not doing drugs and pretending I wasn't an addict. <laughs> right. You know, like, like that was the best that people could sell me, dude, just get sober and like go do normal things. And I was like, okay, I mean, sure, let's try that. And, you know, sobriety without recovery hurt me. It, it hurt me physically, emotionally, spiritually. So I just, you know, I kept failing at that method and kept trying it over and over again. And, uh, you know, to, to get to where we are now, uh, you know, when I was a, a little over 30 years old, I ended up in prison for one of the last times. And, um, you know, it, it just kind of hit me while I was in there that, you know, I, I actually wanted to live. You know, I didn't want to die. I didn't want this life. I wasn't like aspiring to be, you know, a, uh, an addict anymore. Like I had kids. Uh, I had people that cared about me that I had let down so many times that they just accepted that that's who I was in their life. And I didn't like that. Um, so I, I kind of made a decision to make a real go at it and uh, came out and ultimately got high a few more times because, you know, I'm an addict and that's what I do. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, even after making a you know solid conscious decision, you still kind of just you know, still an addict. So right. um, came out and had to give it a last go. And um, ultimately, I ended up going to um, to go see my doctor to get on Suboxone. Um, you know, I was aware of it. I had used it years before, not as a medication to get well, but I used it to bridge the gap between, um, you know, access to heroin. Like, sure. I, if I only had so much money that week. It was like, all right, let's get a couple of grams. And I'm definitely going to need like 10 subs to get through the rest of the week in case I sure. run out. So I knew about it. I had used it, but I figured, um, it was a, a better alternative to absolute abstinence in the tell, beginning. So Michael, for the, um, for the listeners that don't know, tell them uh, briefly what Suboxone is. So, uh, Suboxone buprenorphine is a, um, you know, originally when it came out, it was an opiate replacement medication, a harm reduction medication. Um, over the past five, six years or so, um, it's been more more commonly identified as MAT, a form of MAT, medication-assisted treatment or therapy, or even MAR, medication-assisted recovery, depending on who you talk to. And uh, the idea is that it has a, uh, it's a synthetic opiate with an opiate blocker which means that in addition to providing you physical relief from the withdrawal symptoms of opiates, um, it also has a blocker involved, which kind of prevents you from using that and opiates at exactly the same time. You can take it 
after, you know, 24 hours after you've used opiates. And if you take opiates while you're on it, you really won't feel much. Um, and uh, so it's a it's a useful tool. Um, unfortunately, it ha- it has a <clears throat> excuse me, has a uh, high risk of being uh, misused, uh, mainly because it's readily available and opiates, uh, opiate addicts tend to misuse opiates. That's kind of their thing. Uh, <laughs> I know. Right. Crazy. And uh, so, yeah, so that's what the medication is for. And um, there's multiple forms of it. Suboxone, Subutex, uh, Sublocade, the injectable, um, all different forms designed to try to help people come off of opioids, off opiates. And uh, so I was no different. I jumped right into it and started working with my doctor and got, um, I want to say two good years under my belt. I mean, I'm not going to say they're totally sober. Um, I drank a couple times. Um, I tried not to misuse the medication, but again, I'm an addict and, you know, even trying my best, there were occasional days when I would take a little extra, um, or I would stock stockpile a little bit just in case like my doctor died or like went on vacation or something. (laughs) (laughs) So so some of the, um, which I'd like to, uh, circle back to this at some point, but what's the, um, the, feeling or the effects if you can you take extra and get some sort of under the influence feeling or can you combine it with maybe some other things to get a pretty good high going what's the what's because i am i've moved quite a bit on uh medically assisted treatment i come from a background of total abstinence yeah um and and like i said i have softened quite a bit and i think that there's a lot that we can do utilizing it but one of the things that is a really, really difficult thing for me to get over is this idea of replacing substances with other substances. I like the bridge. I like that it would, you know, reduce harm, but just the ease that someone could take a little bit extra or the challenge of trying to navigate recovery and all the stuff while still having to take a, a, a substance it's just hard for me to get my head around a lot of doctors kind of insist oh well you can't get high on it or this and that and i'm just like well that doesn't you know i don't trust doctors so well look, like me anyway tell, you, tell me, me tell a little you a bit story about let me tell you a story so if you took um if if you uh the listener are a non-opioid user right you've never you don't use them you don't abuse them and you took one eight milligram strip of suboxone because that's how it comes either a pill or strip if you took that you would be fall asleep in your lap high (laughs) for about 36 hours jeez that's how powerful that drug is right yeah so you know they they give it to opioid users or opiate users who've been using consistently uh with a tolerance right yeah now the idea is to prescribe and meet the tolerance yeah, correct. Right. To prescribe yeah. to meet the tolerance. However, um, I can tell you from both personal and professional experience that um, they have such a high resale value because you do get high off of them. Right. I, I find, uh, you know, I, I, I'm on a bunch of uh, Facebook support groups for different MAT, different types of recovery and 12 step. I mean, you got to know what's out there. And 
you know, I see two types of people reporting this. I see the people who probably want to protect their right to take the medication and or the prescription and, you know, don't really want to talk about it. But then I see the other people who are just really honest is that, yeah, you absolutely could double your dose and get high. It's an opiate. To say that you couldn't get high off of doubling a dose of opiates is just silly. Yeah. You know, it's not as fun of a high. It's different, but it's still a high. It's still an opiate high. You can still nod out. You can still feel those feelings, and it still makes you sick if you don't take it. So, I mean, there it is. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, that's um, in one of my – I remember my first time uh, experiencing – uh, this Suboxone deal was, it's funny too, cause I, I've been out the game a while. I mean, I was 20, my, um, uh, I got clean in September, 2001 and my real drug of choice was like weed and alcohol. And I would mm-hmm. binge on hard stuff. And I remember when I came in, crack was the thing. And I remember feeling real inadequate in the meetings that I went to, um, as if my story wasn't bad enough. And I remember right. even going, man, man, maybe I should go back out. <laughs> maybe I should go back out, use crack just so I can get worse and have a better story. And then meth came and then opiates came. And I remember, um, a friend of ours while we were living in Philly and she's like, Oh yeah, my boyfriend's in recovery and all this kind of stuff. And then I remember her telling us a story that they had to leave a vacation early because her, her boyfriend forgot her sabac his suboxone. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's weird. Why would he have to leave early to go to, and that's when I kind of first go, Oh, well sh- that dude's not clean. Right. right. Like it, it, anytime you have to, you can't leave. And I've always heard it from the methadone side that you can't, you can't go on vacation on methadone. You've got to stay close to the, it's like a handcuff, you know? Yeah. And so, so, so that was my story for, for a long period of time. And then I got into like, you know, uh, more into the treatment world and the mental health world and all that. And I go, you know, like there are, there is some value and I don't want to be the guy that says, you know, I don't think hard lines are good, uh, you know, rarely good um, in most situations. And so, so like it, it was just, uh, yeah, it was just such a foreign thing to me. And I definitely think that the 12 step community in a lot of ways, when people are using Suboxone or using some medically assisted treatment and they're following the direction of a doctor and therapist and they're going through PHP and IOP and then they're seeing their therapist and going to 12 step. I also think 12 step is, it needs to do a better job of fanning the flame of desire, not feeling like they're not accepted or they're not clean. Um, It's just such a, it's just a gray, you know, topic. You know, well, me, it really can, is. Can I, can I challenge that for a second? Because sure, go ahead. You know, I know that. Um, have you heard of Mara? M A R A. No. So uh, down in Philly, probably I don't know, six months, maybe a year ago, um, I started seeing this thing called Mara Medication Assisted Recovery Anonymous. Yeah. And you know, I got to say, I, I like that idea because, you know, my problem with that is that. AA as an abstinence-based, um, you know, fellowship prides themselves on the fact that they got well doing what they do, but what they do doesn't work for everybody. And, you know, the reality is, is that if you are on Suboxone, 
you don't belong at an abstinence-based meeting. The only reason people are telling people on Suboxone to go to an abstinence-based meeting is because there aren't any support groups for people on Suboxone. And there should be. Now, I can go to an AA meeting and I can, you know, people will raise their hand and I get to see examples of that program and it, and it working, right? This program yeah. works because everyone in here did this thing. Everyone in here stopped. Everyone in here is abstinent. And this is how they did it. And I have living examples, proof in this room that the method they used works. And if I do what they tell me, I'll get what they have. Now, right. if I'm on Suboxone and I'm in that room, I'm at the wrong event. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a room full of people doing what I'm doing. As a matter of fact, I don't have any living examples of people in that room doing what I'm doing. And what I'm doing may not get me the results that those people have in that room. I need a different meeting. And I'm a little frustrated that with all the money being thrown at MAT or MAR, whatever it is now, that they're not throwing money into creating support groups. Because while I was on Suboxone, I didn't have access to support groups where I could go in and see 25, 30 people that had used Suboxone and or were using it successfully who were willing to speak openly and talk to me about my experience and what I should expect and what it's going to be like if I stop and what it's going to be like if I'm on it for five years or 10 years or three years. I was alone. And the yeah. only resource anyone could tell me was you should go to an abstinence based support group. And I was like, but why? <laughs> I'm not abstinent. <laughs> and they're like, but yeah, you are. You're abstinent from all those other drugs. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I kind of nod out two or three times a day. Like, I don't feel <laughs> abstinent. You know what I mean? Like, I get right. it from your perspective, but like, dude, right. I got to be careful driving sometimes right after I medicate. To me, that doesn't sound abstinent. You know, I, I agree. And I think, and, and, and I do understand where you're coming from with that. And it's an, it's a, it's an argument for sure. I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of, um, you know, judging by how ridiculously difficult it is to get a nonprofit self-supporting agency rolling like a 12 step. Um, I don't love the idea of like marijuana is anonymous and cocaine's anonymous and medically assisted anonymous. And yeah. I don't love that because they get so saturated and it's kind of yeah. like the blind leading the blind. I, I, and I also look at two. Now, again, this is a biased opinion because of how I came up. I mean, I came up, uh, hardcore narcotics and hardcore militant yeah. uh, for about eight years. And then, I mean, I went to a meeting every day for five years um, I was in it. And then my wife started, um, you know, Alan on and I kind of was feeling like I needed something different. And then mm -hmm. I started going to AA and I did that. And I'm also a believer, too, of being kind of, a, you know, go with where you feel welcome. One book, one fellowship, one sponsor, at least while you get your foundation. Mm -hmm. But there um, but I always kind of I guess I kind of look at the Suboxone as like a. Um, you know, it's kind of like taking a Zoloft in a sense. If you mm -hmm. get the medic, if you can get the 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 dosage right, and the goal is to slowly work yourself off, even if you're on it for two, three, four years, but you can keep the 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 amount down where you can function. You're working the steps. You're going to see your therapist. You're doing all the support groups, etc. Um, you know, I think the ultimate goal is to eventually work your way off and find a new way to live that and be a responsible, productive member of society. I just the, the other thing which Dr. Drew makes a really great point about this is this is 
the first time being in the being in the mental health industry mm-hmm. for the first time in my entire recovery, I would I I wouldn't say regularly, but often enough to be surprised that therapists and doctors say we don't like sending our patients to 12 step. They contradict what we say. Mm-hmm. Um, they're constantly pressuring them not only to get off the medically assisted, but even some of the psychotropic medications, which I think is absolutely ridiculous from the 12 step side. I think that's an area where abstinent based 12 step can be better. Yeah. Um, you know, but, um, but the ultimate goal for someone that is struggling with a substance use disorder, uh, my, my ultimate goal is to get better, to address the root issues, to, to develop the coping skills, to, to, to learn how to deal with our thoughts, feelings, and emotions without the use of substance and right. ultimately work our way off. And, oh, this was the point Dr. Drew makes is the, the amount of face-to-face contact or touch, right, that is a good recommendation for someone struggling with mental health and addiction is so high. It is. You can't do it with once or twice a week counseling. It's so high. Like if I'm prescribing for someone new, I'm going to be like meeting every day. You got a uh, you got a uh, you got a recovery coach. You're going to see that person every day. You're going to talk to five people on the phone. You're going to see your counselor. You're going to go get your Suboxone, uh, whatever you're going to see. It's like shit every day. Right. But the medic, the medical the medical industry can't support that. It'd be millions of dollars for every person that goes through, but the people that are willing to do it for free is the 12 step community. And that's why I think it's, it's, it's a shame not to use the 12 step communities, but as you said, it can be complicated. It could be convoluted. It could be people don't feel, they don't always feel welcome. They don't always find their place. And that's where I think we could get we could get better. Well, it's kind of like with, uh, you know, kids sports teams and stuff like, you know, I mean, it's uh, uh, the or the girl, a girl wanting to be in the Boy Scouts. You know what I mean? Like there's the Girl Scouts yeah. and there's the Boy Scouts. It's like, you know, there there's there's abstinence based support groups. There's behavioral therapy based support groups like smart recovery or rational yeah. recovery. Like there's other places that people can go. And yeah, I get it. I'm a 12 step guy. That's how I got sober. And, you know, that's how I got well. That's why my life is, you know, framed up the way it is, because it's built on an extremely solid foundation. But, yeah, like, I just I, I get caught up with, you know, something you you said before, and I don't want to like harp on this, but it is a good topic is yeah. like, you know, you said it's kind of like if someone was taking Zoloft or some other medication, and I would have to counter that with not really, because what if that person, you know, would it be the same if they had you know, their previous addiction was antidepressants. Do you know what I mean? And they're coming and taking Zoloft and you're like, dude, you're still like taking an antidepressant. You know, it's, it's, it's different that way. And people tend to compare it to other less significant medications and not really comparable scenarios because it's not the same. If you're an opiate addict and you're taking a synthetic opiate, you're still connecting those receptors. You know what I mean? You're still attached to the daily use of a medication to fight back the withdrawals of opiate addiction. You're doing that every day and there's still a synapse connection in there that is firing off that if I don't take it, I will get sick. If I don't take it, I will get sick. And that happens every day, multiple times a day when you take your meds. And like that part 
stays and you can't let go of yeah. that part. You can't heal from that part while you're still on it. Like, yeah. And that's just from personal experience. I know, like when I said before, I was stashing stuff in case my doctor died. Dude, that's how we live, man. Like <laughs> survival yeah. mode. And yeah, you know, I agree that I've, I've had to soften up to, um, you know, to the point where like I'm working with people on Suboxone now, coaching, um, doing other things. And I, I'm biased in my opinion, in the, in, in the sense that I'm an interventionist, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't get calls from people where it's working. I only get the calls from people where it's not working. I only meet yeah. people who don't use Suboxone correctly. <laughs> the ones who yeah. are using it correctly. We never, even they don't need them. you. We don't need them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not, I don't, yeah. to me, they don't exist because I never right. hear from them. I don't see them. I don't see them on the news. I don't see them in meetings. I don't see them out there advocating. They're just right. in the shadows on Suboxone. Yeah. At least in AA, people are screaming about it all. I'm in recovery. I'm sober, you know, posting the years sober and stuff like that. And there's just not a, there's not a comparable um, medium or format for people on Suboxone to promote how well they're doing and inspire yeah. other people. And in all honesty, prove efficacy. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing too, um, Mike is like how, and I got a, a lot of my views and opinions are just kind of like skeptical hippo eyes. Like I don't necessarily trust um, that I'm being fed the, 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 the truth. Like, um, you know, when we talk about um, research backed and we talk about uh, what's the phrasing where it's evidence, uh, evidence based. There you oh, go. My man. And I'm like, what does that actually mean? Exactly. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> who's funding this evidence? Oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the drug companies, the insurance companies, the big, you know, some way, somehow, the, the, the big, uh, you know, big pharma, big insurance, these, these industries are funding it. And, of course, they come out with this is the be this is the best ethical way um, uh, to, to help addiction. And, and I don't know how you feel about Dr. Drew, but I, I quite like his perspective because he does come from a medic medical back. Um, and what his big thing with the medically assisted treatment is, he said, I'm not anti medically assisted, but. I am skeptical how hard they're pushing it. The medical community pushes it as if it's like the the savior. But we've we've done medically assisted or replacement therapy for years and years and years, and it's never it's never a um, it's never a surefire way to end it. And I, I think that there's a talk to be had, and there, it's that's one thing I love that Narcotics Anonymous does so well is um, addressing that all substances are equal. I mean, theoretically, their viewpoint of how they address things is actually the most encompassing because whether you use alcohol, antidepressants, Suboxone or any of the hard stuff, when you say I use and I qualify, you qualify in that room because I, right. if it's not one thing or another, if you took all the all of my favorite preference, uh, the drugs that I love the most off the face of this earth and I was still using, I just find something else to use. And when that quits oh, working, yeah. I'll go find people, something places, else and things, man. hundred yeah. percent. It's like this. Yeah. And oh, so, there's no things to use. Let me use some people. Right, that's <laughs> right. That's right. And so yeah. I think that that is, um, I, I think it's so valuable, particularly for those listeners and family members that don't. Um, one of my favorite stories is I've got a, I've got a good buddy and my, my background and my family background, they're pretty heavy drinkers. I mean, they have a good, they have a good time and, and, um, and so they always say this, this friend of mine, they're like, oh, you know, he's doing so well. He doesn't, he's a, doesn't even drink that much. And I go, yeah, because he takes 
10 to 15 Viking in a day. He smoked right. weed. And yes, of yeah. course he doesn't drink. Guess what happens when he cuts back on his weed and Viking and he starts drinking like a fish and which is yeah. more dangerous drinking right. and ended up with the DWI or being able to kind of maintain that functional uh, addiction with weed and, and opiates. Um, mm-hmm. And everybody thinks he's got his stuff together. And so it's just so convoluted when we go, this is a this is a this is something that that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to suboxone is we had um a friend of ours a good friend he's an aa and he was leaning on his his boss about how his son was a heroin addict and now he's been on suboxone for three years and he kept he kept pounding his boss saying your son's not clean why do you let him do it your son's not clean and mm. the son and the and the father his boss said here's what you don't understand is that my son was a down and out hair needle using junkie. He was stealing. Mm-hmm. He would take money from us. He couldn't hold a job. And now that he's on Suboxone, he is showing up to work every day. Uh, he's not stealing anymore. And I have my son back. And I don't give a crap mm-hmm. if he's on Suboxone. And I said, you know what? That's a good point. You know, good. Too, too well, shy. to that same point, though. Like, I always say this, if my heroin dealer would just keep giving me heroin and it didn't cost money, I wouldn't have had a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a little more, right? I think that's a little more challenging to, 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 uh, to, to argue. Maybe if it was, uh, maybe if we did the, the Swiss model or they gave us the pure stuff and we knew exactly well, how much we get when it's, we were getting it. The, the problem isn't the drug. We vilify heroin. Heroin's not the problem. Right. It's access. Okay. The things that, the things that caused me distress in my life, the lying, the shooting, all that stuff that was that was access yeah the stealing that was access the 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 lying it was access i had to hide it yeah as soon as you get on another opiate that you don't have to lie to get and that people you don't have to hustle to get your life automatically changes the the thing that the thing that i get caught up with is that you're right there are a lot of professionals that see it as a panacea it's a solution and it's not it's a solution to the symptom not the problem 100% right so the symptoms are that when I do drugs, I act like an ass and I run around and I lie, cheat and steal. And I live in the shadows because I have no choice. I'm using illegal substances and I don't have enough money to maintain my habits. So I'm forced to live that way of life. The, the, those are the symptoms. The medication treats those symptoms, but it does nothing for the problem. My concern is when people take it, they don't address the problem. They basically wrap their problem, their symptoms up with scotch tape. So it looks like they're held together. And then if a strong wind blows, they fall apart and use it. Yeah. And that's, that's a problem. And it, it's for the right person. Great tool. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll even say I'm, I was the right person. Yeah. So, you so, know, like my so story help got me, to the point where so help me understand this when you, when you, so you were young, started off smoking alcohol, probably uh, started getting into yep. harder stuff. And how did you, uh, how did you bounce to him from jail? How did you end up, down and out and thinking maybe i shouldn't do this anymore so um i mean i'll go all the way back to like 17 real quick um i was uh smoking crack living in my mother's house you were a high achiever Um, smoking crack at 17 bro who said who said we're not high achievers right right i know i was top of the class so (laughs) and you know we i was part of a small group of people in my town that was doing it you know what i mean we uh where you we, from? Uh, the younger, the younger kids, I mean, um, not a lot of the younger kids were doing it. So, 
but uh, I, this was this this was a problem for me, and it was I was living with my mom and my stepdad, and uh, you know they they caught me, and I got into some some heated arguments and a physical battle with my stepfather, and I ended up getting uh, kicked out. I got arrested, and then from that point forward, I never really lived at home again, and uh, so I was homeless right around 17, 18 years old and started to have my first experiences with going to jail, stupid stuff, shoplifting, minor in possession, trespassing, you know, uh, just basically being a vagrant. And, uh, you know, heroin didn't really, crack was kind of my jam. Uh, heroin didn't really creep into the picture until I was about almost 19. And uh, it was just accidentally i took my friend to go get some coke out in lynn which is a town out here where everybody goes to get there where coke. are you from <laughs> and uh up near boston mass yeah. a little north of boston that's that that's that funny accent i hear that's well, it you, that's you, and, Ma- no you and megan it's like when i talk to uh when i talk to my my redneck folks back in texas boy i get hillbilly real quick you, mm-hmm. you, y'all, you two it's like listening oh, yeah. to uh listening to uh goodwill hunting or something <laughs> Yeah, well, we as soon as we get together, there's no yeah, R, y'all, y'all, so an R. y'all turn it on. That's that's for sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, so it, it just it kind of it kind of blossomed into uh, you know just accidentally bumping into heroin, falling in love with it, um, you know, and then from that point forward, it was just a it was a a, a jambalaya of drugs, um, and at any given point, it was based on uh, access, what I was selling at the time. I sold a lot of drugs, did some time for selling drugs, um, kept getting caught cause monkeys don't sell bananas very well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just, it was, um, it was a series of me trying to use and lead a normal life at the same time, which is just an impossibility for me. It was such an unmanageable life. Uh, but I kept trying, I kept trying to like get an apartment, a girlfriend, a job and sell and do drugs at the same time, because I liked all of those things. Um, and they just didn't all fit into the bucket for me. Uh, the, probably the most significant jail experience for me, um, was the first one when I was 19. And, uh, that's right after I fell in love with heroin, I started selling it and, uh, selling coke and and i ended up getting uh i sold to an undercover detective and they kicked my door in and you know i got my first uh page of felonies and um you know spent spent a couple years upstate and uh that's where i kind of learned how to be uh, more of a professional i guess you know i went in at 19 years old came out when i was almost 22 and wow you know, that was, those were formative years for me. And I went in as an, an opiate addict, uh, with no real direction. And I came out a little bit more educated about, you know, what it meant to be a criminal, um, and some of the things I needed to watch out for. And, you know, I came out and spent a year on parole and I think I did pretty good. I didn't get violated, but as soon as parole was over, I immediately went and picked up a bunch of Coke and tried to sell it without doing it to, to, you know, go back to the, the thing I love, which was money and power and, uh, started using again. And that just, that's the theme. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could probably tell that story four more times before I turned 30. Um, and it's the same story over and over again, just different sentences, different location, different amounts. I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to, one of the, one of my passions and when I have kind of the close your eyes and dream view is trying to normalize mental health and addiction and support groups and making counseling therapy uh, support groups as normal as hiring a personal trainer or going to a group exercise fitness class. Because, um, 
you know, we we're at a point now with mental health and addiction where everybody knows it's an issue. I mean, they're talking about it from the podium politically. Um, they're talking about it in schools, but nobody really knows how to connect the dots. I think the other uh, thing is, no, you know, I, I think some of the statistics are the average drug addict or alcoholic goes to rehab four to eight times, um, right. which is thirty to forty thousand dollars per time. So. Uh, you know, it takes a while. And I think in terms of like the progression that we talk about in the rooms um, and this idea, this metaphor for like, um, you know, a lot of times in the 12 step fellowship in the rooms, we 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 um, we glorify the high level alcoholic and drug addict like, you know, we're the only people that like to say, oh, yeah, you think that was bad? Try this. And we all laugh at each other and we talk about getting around. <laughs> and the average person's like, oh, my God, y'all are crazy. But I think about it in terms of like cancer, right? You got stage one, two, three, four. And, you know, if you got stage one, stage two cancer, sure, you're going to, you know, be scared. You're going to make a few life changes, but odds are pretty good. You're going to do what the doctor says, whatever. But if you got stage four, you're going to be open to suggestions. You're going to, you want me to eat avocados every day? I'll eat avocados. You want me to, you know, shave my head and jump on one foot? You're going to do that. And that's a similar thing with, with addiction is everybody is trying to navigate how much do I have to give up? Or I guess how little do I have to give up and not have the negative consequences and still have the life that I want, the money, the power, the goals. But I just want to quit getting arrested. So they're making these minor, minor tweaks. But it's just kind of like someone getting a, a stage one cancer diagnosis and going, do I have to really do I have to really quit all smoking cigarettes? Do I have to take all the sugar out of my diet? It's just kind of as 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 challenging um, as someone uh, with addiction. It's just that you've got the allergy piece. You've got the the obsession, the compulsion piece. And it just uh, it just doesn't. It just doesn't make sense for a lot of people. So everybody's I'm not going to do it that way anymore. I'm going to try it this way. Um, And and that seems like if if I could try to impress upon these, you know, you know, people listening or normies or people that have family members uh, that are struggling, then they just go, I don't understand it. Why is Mike keep doing this? And you're like, well, it's just trying it a different way. And we just, you know, something inside us doesn't let us uh, stop. Um, which is kind of like what you're saying with your uh, four or five different well, ways. I mean, the reality is, is that we're in love with the very thing that's killing us. And the only reason we want to stop is because it hurts, not because we don't want to do that's it. Anymore. And that's really like, that's the ambivalence of access to services. Like there are tons of services available for the self-motivated driven individual that wants to change in the same way that, you know, I always compare them to fitness. Like I went and became a personal trainer at one point in my recovery. And during the, 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 the training for that, the woman said, you need to eliminate the word diet from your vocabulary as a trainer. And the reason being is, is that if you're going to actually get them results, lasting results, you're not there to help change their diet temporarily. Cause that's what that word means for most people, temporary change in, in your uh, activity to get an achieved result you're supposed to get them to change their lifestyle, their way yeah. of life. And, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that if you came to me and you're like, Mike, you know, I'm a hundred pounds overweight. I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. Well, the things that I'm going to tell you to do are for the long-term results because you don't need to lose a hundred pounds. 
you need to learn how to eat healthy. You need to learn how to enjoy healthy food. You need to change when you get up, when you go to sleep. You need to change your daily activity level. You need to understand food and macros. But you actually just want to lose 100 yeah, exactly. pounds. You know what I mean? And so like when, when, when uh, someone struggling with addiction comes to any of those available services, they're not usually coming looking for a solution. They're coming and looking for a quick fix to the pain they feel yeah. at the moment with the dream that maybe they'll be able to use and save yeah. me someday. I, and that's, that's a yeah, problem. I think too, it's kind of like uh, going back to this idea of the medical community, seeing, trying to fix things medically. It's kind of like, uh, you know, doctors get maybe a few hours of nutrition uh, education. They get a few hours of addiction uh, education and everything else is a medical issue. It can be changed with a pill, a surgery, a minor tweak here, a minor tweak there. But but the the true solution to mental health and addiction, if we're really going to combat it, it's as it's as strenuous and crazy as saying that we're going to change America's healthcare system with diet. Most people would just roll their eyes and say, get the yeah. hell out of here with that crap, you know, right. and that's kind of the thing. It's like, yo, what do I got to do uh, to lose 100 pounds? No, I don't want to change my life. I just want to lose a hundred pounds. And it's the same. It's the same. Yeah, isn't there like a pill I can right. take or something? Like, or give me a little yeah. something, something. So what happened after? So you you go bouncing in and out, just trying every way that you can to be able to live the life that you want to live. And then uh, what happened for you to uh, to to say, I'm going to give this a shot? Like, what was the what was the situation, the moment? How did you end up there? So, you know, I wrote about this in my book because What's this book was called? a really like. Uh, loving lines it it's a guide for families struggling with addiction yeah it's nice. out on amazon and stuff like yeah. that um and you know that there was a one of the chapters that talk about this 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 last experience sitting in jail and it was you know i went in at uh i think i was 30 or 29 or something like that and it was a probation violation i got arrested for the exact same charges i was on probation for just constantly shooting myself in the foot and uh so I go in there and I remember uh, I remember calling my mom um, and, you know, in one of my conversations, I was like, Mom, I think I'm just going to stay. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I think I've decided that, like, I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to stay in jail. Like, I, I don't I don't fit in out there. I don't know how to do whatever the hell it is you guys do, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you weird, weird, yeah. normal Can't people. Can't figure this like, out. I don't fit into your world. I don't, yeah, I don't know how to assimilate, you know, like this whole get sober and do normal. Like I just can't assimilate. I, I do well in jail. Like I'm six foot three. I'm, I'm strong. I'm, I'm a big guy. Like we, we fit in in jail. Like it's, you know, I, I'm a fairly intimidating looking individual. I'm not very intimidating, but I guess I look that way. So in jail, it's it's a comfortable place for me. And uh, I know how to navigate that. I'm safe in jail. I can't really abuse drugs on a daily basis. I'm, I don't have the chance of getting arrested. It's already been done. Um, and more importantly, I felt like, you know, my family was kind of safe for me too. My kids were safe from me jumping in and out of their life, breaking promises. Like that, those are the feelings I had when I, when I was in this last time. And, um, you know, so I just told my mother I was going to stay. And like, I started to get into the mindset of like jail politics and, you know, I started fighting and stuff, trying to create new charges. Like I was into it. Wow. I was going to, I was going to make it a thing because it's the only place I felt 
Like I was an animal. It's like, it's like belonged uh, in the, zoo. O- the only place you felt safe, safe in the chaos. Well, I was like a, the, uh, yeah, I was like a wild animal and I, I felt like I belonged in the zoo. Well, that's true. Like I just shouldn't be roaming the streets, yeah. like, you know? And, uh, I, I would say probably six months into that, um, I started to uh, read the Bible. Uh, my mother told me to read it, and I got to Kings. Man, I couldn't get through Kings. It was just—I <laughs> I don't even—it's just re- repetitive. It was just killing me, and uh, so I didn't get any further than that. And it wasn't like reading the Bible was the thing, but this is the this is the timeline. And uh, you know, after I put that down, I just started thinking like my my name is my father's namesake, and it's also my son. So you know, I'm a junior. My son is the third. And I was just thinking about my name one night and I was like, man, I have trashed my dad's name. (laughs) Like he gave it to me and it was good. And I just shit all over it. And, um, you know, I just started thinking about my little, you know, eight year old kid at the time. Um, and how um, even younger, I think he was like six and how he's got my name and like everyone in town knows who I am. Everything I've ever done was so loud and public. It was in the paper. It was, you know, everybody talked about it. And so like my name rang with a, 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 a I don't know, a bad taste sure. uh, when people said it. And so I just I was picturing what I had left behind that I, I kind of left this this lingering thing out there where I, I just pictured my son going to like a friend's house and, you know, being like, oh, who's this? And it's my friend Mikey Wilson. And they're like, is his dad Mike Wilson? And then like having my kid judged, right? you know, or having him like you know perceived as less than because of where i was at and this was just this rare moment of clarity that i had sitting in my cell um and uh it kind of inspired me it, it lit a little bit of a fire like you know what f it i'm gonna go out and give it one more shot and um you know i i, I hustled and sold a bunch of stuff and you know started doing uh, uh running the book uh the the sports book in there so i could get some money and bailed myself out and, um, you know, fought my probation charge and came out. I still felt like a, you know, a wild animal let loose on the streets, but just tried. And I, that's when I said, like, I relapsed and got high a few more times, but it just wasn't the same. And uh, I had just this sense of, you know, underlying clarity that I wanted more than what I had. And I was willing to try giving it up. Um, I still held on to that um, reservation that you know all right i'll do this now i'm like i'm 30 i'll do this now but when i'm 50 i'm liquidating everything i'm buying as much heroin as i can i'm going to florida (laughs) i'm just going to be on a boat and i'm just going to shoot dope until i die and i was like but for the next 20 years i'm going to do the right Right, thing we have (laughs) we have uh, high uh high hopes and expectations right well i mean that was the that's the best life i could imagine for myself at the time like i couldn't have imagined the happiness I have in the life I have right now, because I couldn't imagine that I would have been capable of achieving what I've achieved. Mm-hmm. So how could I aspire for anything other than the best version of the life I had at the yeah, time? True that as much heroin as I can get with no responsibility. Yep, yep. I often fantasize about uh, my wife wrote a great article. Um, she's been in Al-Anon for over 11 years and uh, she's a life coach. And she wrote an article that said, uh, uh, why I love being married to an addict. And that was one of the things that she said is, although I've been, you know, talking about me that I've been abstinent for, for a long time, I still fantasize about the feeling of no responsibility and, you know, uh, trying to escape reality. 
And, um, and for many people, the only way that we know how to do that is through drugs and alcohol. And so, yeah, I get that. That's a, it's the first time I've really heard someone put it in that context. Um, mm-hmm. what, so what was, the, what was next? So how, so you got out, used a few times, you started going to a doctor. How did you, uh, end up in, into, uh, uh, 12 step. So, uh, so I was on there for, um, I was on, on the Suboxone with my doctor for, um, two, three years. And, uh, you know, I, I had, um, I had started a company, uh, called, it was called Renewed Hope at the time. And, um, just a little nonprofit. Uh, I was, uh, Basically, I had some people that donated a bunch of money, got me an office. I was meeting with kids, families. I was just trying to figure out what was needed in the area because I wanted to help. And so, you know, it kind of focused my direction on families. And, you know, I was on Suboxone at the time and I was trying my hardest to use it responsibly. I was trying my hardest to, like, do the right thing and go home. But I didn't go home feeling good about myself. I went home feeling kind of weird that, you know, like I still needed this medication. Not that I was wrong for taking it but that I still needed it to be okay. Yeah. And that was something that was just kind of, it's been, it was ingrained in me for years that like I need drugs to feel okay. And now I want my life to be better. Why do I still need a drug to feel okay? And so I just had this constant personal inner battle with that. And my doctor kept telling me, you're doing the right thing. Just stay on Suboxone. Like you're sober, you should feel good. And everybody kept telling me how I should feel, but it didn't change how I really did. Feel. Right. Um, and so, you know, that battle went on for a long time. And I had a lot of friends um, who were in recovery using the 12 steps, like, you know, strong 12 step model, um, you know, not not big book thumpers, but strong 12 step practitioners. Sure. Um, and I had one friend that, that kind of worked up the street from me at a Dairy Queen. And I would go up there and uh, in the morning, I'd go up and we'd smoke some butts together and yuck it up and. Smoke you know, some butts, I you mean have... cigarettes, not bud. Uh, cigarettes, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no buds. Yeah, gotcha, uh, gotcha. Just check it. Together. You got, that, you got yeah. that foreign accent. I wanted to just make sure I had the lingo down. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, uh, you know, we would just kind of hang out and laugh and stuff. And, like, you know, I, w- I had the freedom to laugh and, and enjoy the moment, but his laugh just seemed a little bit more free. And, uh, isn't that you know, I started... Isn't that interesting how... You know, I think I think in terms of like spirituality, recovery, that feeling the happy, joyous and free, it's 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 this intangible thing that like when you're in it, you can't explain it. What's the the, the phrasing is that from the outside looking in, you, you can't understand yeah. it. And from the inside looking out, you can't explain it that just that little uh, micro detail about his laugh seemed more free. I know what you mean by that, but. I don't know that everybody can get their head around that, that feeling of knowing that something's off and somebody seems more free. And I don't know, really know what it is. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a cool. Well, detail. That's, it is. And it's just it, like you said, it is just a, such a small thing because like I was able to enjoy the moment. I was laughing too. I mean, we were having a good time, yeah. but you know, mine felt a little bit more muffled. Right you know, uh, uh, stunted for some reason. And his just seems inhibited, uh, uninhibited, like just free. And so, you know, I, I saw that in him and this is somebody that I used with. This is somebody that I knew was as bad as I was. 
at one point. So I knew for a fact that he had gone through what I had gone through and I saw him free of what we went through and I still felt imprisoned by yeah. it. And so I asked him, I was like, you know, what's the deal, man? You know, like I'm, I'm doing this thing. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to knock what you're doing. Keep doing it if it works for you. But if you have a change of mind, let me know and I'll go down this road with you. And he was never, he never pushed it. He was never like, you're doing the wrong thing. He was still a good friend. And, you know, I kept coming around. I'm like, I think I'm almost ready. And he's like, all right, cool. Let me know. And that was it. I wouldn't talk to him for another month. My, my <laughs> assumption, my and, assumption with this guy is he, is he had a, he had some time under his belt. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I think when, uh, when I was doing this, he was two or three years into his recovery. Yeah. I think the reason uh, I think about that is because, uh, you know, many people have the experience of just getting, being new and recovering, wanting to just throw up on everybody and go and like, you know, trying to recruit people. Um, match them in the head exactly, exactly. Versus, you know, once you kind of get a bit stable, I I think that's, and I want to talk to you in a little while about anonymity, but I think that's one of the, one of the things about someone that's kind of more mature, a bit more mature in their recovery is just like, that's how we attract and we help people is not by telling them they're idiots or they're not doing right. It's by just saying, Hey man, if you ever want something different, come on, you know, and, and, but keeping the door uh, open enough that you keep coming back and talking and trusting me. So that, that, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty neat detail that, that he just said, Hey, whenever you're ready and you knew what he meant and, and you kept, Mm -hmm. you know, he, he didn't like run you off by saying you're not really clean, you know, uh, uh, kind of an attitude, but, um, Anyway, so he said, whenever you're Which ready, you holler at your boy, and, and then what happened? I hollered at my boy. <laughs> <Right on. laughs> took, took a little time. Took a little time. And, and I'm not going to lie to you, man. Like, this was uh, – I still came at this like a good addict. Uh, you know, I was like, listen, man. I, was, I said, I want, you to, I want you to take me to detox, um, drop me off, pick me up, and then I want to get in because I couldn't, I couldn't titrate off the uh, Suboxone, which is to taper down. I couldn't do it on my sure. own. Um, I got down to about two milligrams and for anyone that's familiar with, uh, you know, methadone and suboxone, the last two milligrams of the last five is the hardest. It's the, it's the bridge between I have something to feel okay. And I don't, and that is an absolute, that's not a, that's not a, a small crevice. That's the grand Canyon for some people. And it was for me. So I had him take me to detox and, uh, he said, bring all your suboxone with you. And so I brought him like, two bottles of suboxone which you had more left that you uh, had more left at the house yeah <laughs> and i gave them the, i gave them three scripts that hadn't even been filled yet because i you know i stockpile just in yeah. case and uh he's like um this is all of it right and i'm like yeah and he's like well whatever you brought with you we'll get rid of so you know he sprinkled them across the the median on 495 on the way to detox and ripped up the scripts and um you know, I went to detox and, you know, I was there for six days and I came out sick because the detox from Suboxone is about 14 days. Yeah. And so I came out um, and I wasn't ready. Uh, I probably should have stayed or went someplace else afterward. But I came out and uh, immediately went back to my my little super secret stash at my house, um, chipped away at it. Uh, ultimately, I spent the next two weeks self detoxing and just fought through it. And uh, got myself off of it because I was dedicated. I was motivated, yeah. I was dedicated to this. I just wasn't prepared for the two weeks of detox. Nobody told me. I didn't know. My doctor didn't didn't give me the details. He just said, "If you stop, it's going to be hard." 
And that was like the the extent of his knowledge around it. <laughs> well, this is this and, is one um, of my arguments, sweets, is um, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's important that we have these conversations and that normal average people hear them because they don't know that when we because of insurance and coverage and payment that when we go in the average detox from uh, suboxone is 14 days, but insurance is going to cover five and they go, or they go, Hey, you need 30 days of treatment. We get a call 13 days in and says, well, you're ready to be discharged. And the only reason that is because the insurance is discharging you. It's not because the doctor's recommendations is that money's running no. out and, and, and the yeah. patient doesn't know any different. They just goes up. Oh, well, I guess I'm ready. And then they're just throwing them right back on the streets going, all right, figure it out. Go see your counselor or find a meeting. And it's just the only reason that they're able to do that is because enough people aren't vocal enough. I eat the stigma there. Like this is kind of one of the arguments for if you and I go to a a burger joint, we get a bad burger. If it's bad enough, we're going to complain on Google. But if you take your wife, your daughter, yourself to a treatment center and you get thrown out on your ass after three days because insurance said so you're not going to say a damn word to anybody you're too embarrassed or ashamed you're 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 not going to say anything which perpetuates the cycle and why insurance companies have so much power not that i'm anti-insurance it's just that they're not going to change anything until more people talk about it (laughs) and demand that you know we need the coverage that's why you got discharged after six days instead of 14 the reality is is that Unfortunately, they're dictating treatment, but they're not providing treatment. True. Do you know what I mean? The time the timelines are arbitrary. Like this argument transcends all levels of care, you know, beyond detox. This goes up into 30 days, 45 days. What the hell do those numbers mean? Right. Like this that's not those aren't evidence-based numbers about best chance for success or efficacy of treatment. Those are numbers based on and eh, we'll cover that. We'll cover, yeah. And a lot of times they won't because <laughs> I, I that's what I, that's one thing I was talking to you about earlier is that most people either don't know or unwilling to accept that most prescriptions of treatment, and I'm not just saying drug prescriptions for drug and alcohol and even mental health is two to five years. And they're like, what, right. what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, here's why average person relapses this many times. This is how often you got to do something about your recovery. And that, and that, and you know, if we totally, if we only have to rely on the medical community, that, that cost a million dollars for sweets to get clean if if medical you know insurance and um it, it had to pay for it and we had to rely solely on the medical community um mm-hmm. but and and another thing you mentioned which um i kind of heard but uh oftentimes suboxone medically assisted treatments methadone are harder to get off of than heroin or than some the things that they're replacing is that accurate that is it. That's exactly what they told me when I was in detox. I went in, I said, I wanted to come off Suboxone. They said, you should have just used heroin first <laughs> before you came in because the detox only would have been three to five days. They said, here, you're going to be sick even when you leave. And I'm like, nah, I'll be fine. And I wasn't. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. So, so you had, so you, you had your secret stash, you used that to wean yourself off. And then what happened? Uh, then I went out on a mandate with my sponsor uh, with my skin crawling, shaking, feeling like I was a brand new early in recovery addict, even though I had a couple of years of stability under my belt and a company to run and, uh, fresh off the box. And I had to start from scratch and I just, uh, I pounded away at it. You know, I had my sponsor come in and read to me and explain 
you know, the steps and what the book meant. And, you know, I had read the book, but I had never had it read to me. And so having it read to me and having it explained and trying to understand why these things were going to help me and, and how they could help me. And more importantly, the piece that was explained to me that was critical, it was a critical element that actually got me to engage was that, you know, for years I had been told that recovery is a lifelong process. Once you're in recovery, you'll have to go to meetings, you'll have to show up and like, you'll have to keep doing it over and over again in order to stay sober. And that was not very appealing. That did not seem like a sustainable recovery process. And the way it was explained to me was, was something different, which I, I subscribe to this. And I think a lot of my clients do as well, because it, it speaks to the sense of, being recovered, right? That, you know, you're never not going to have been an addict, but you can recover from the damage that's been done. You can recover as a human being. You can recover that part of yourself that was lost and you can become recovered. And the analogy he gave was like a broken leg. You know, you aren't a broken leg. You don't always have broken leg. You had a broken leg. And because you gave it time to heal and you followed the direction and you went to physical therapy and you rebuilt the muscles around it and you walked before you jogged, before you ran, before you sprinted. Now you don't have broken leg. Yeah. And I was like, that's amazing. And, you know, he said, if you take the time to do the things that need to be done and you heal as a person, you won't be an addict. You will have been an addict and you will still have, you know, uh, um, uh, some of the characteristics like the obsessive compulsive part of your addiction will still exist and you will have to learn to manage that, but it won't manifest as drug use. Sure. You know, it won't manifest as unhealthy obsessions and compulsions, assuming that you do this. And I was like, man, I can buy that. Sure. I can buy into putting in the work if I know I'm going to get a result right. rather than putting in the work every day, every day, knowing I have to put in the work every day. Cause you know what? One of those days I'm going to be like, uh, I think I'm just going to go get high. There's a lot of work <laughs> and it would just be really easy to just give up. So the way it was sold to me, I think was really important. Um, and the way it was sold was something I could buy. What did your, uh, in that, you bring up a good topic. Cause I know that a couple of the bigger 12 step fellowships, um, AA and then, uh, narcotics anonymous and alcoholics anonymous. Like they, uh, I know in NA they debate a lot and, clown AA a little bit and say recovered you know recovered implies that you're done and we're recovering and that means we're always working and 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 I agree who the hell wants to say you gotta here you gotta change one thing that's everything you're gonna be going to meetings for the rest of your life which can equally be an addiction as well what did your um uh, and I also think it has to do with semantics uh probably it go, is probably goes yeah. into my my belief about um God and a higher power uh, is that I think that my higher power is smart enough to know that what works for me may not work for you. So he needs to put or it needs to put two paths on this planet so we can both get to him. If he only puts one, that means you don't get there. If he puts yours, right. I don't get there, which doesn't mm -hmm. move people towards, you know, a place of uh, you know, being happy, joyous and free, good orderly direction or moving in the direction in which, you know, most uh, spiritual practices want you to where, where they want you to be. So that's an interesting. Uh, that's a, an interesting. Um, I've heard that variation 
but what did your so what did your recovery end up looking like? Was it did meet was it did it involve meetings? Did it involve service? Did it involve sponsorship and doing something regularly? What did it look like for you? So uh, before I answer that question, I just want to say one sure. thing is that, you know, the the idea of recovered versus recovering for me, uh, again, I always bring it back to dieting yeah. um, and, and stuff like that, because it's, it's palatable. It's something comparable, especially to people who don't understand addiction, yeah. is that uh, when you when you go down the journey of losing weight or getting healthy in the beginning, it's a diet. Yeah. But eventually it becomes Lifestyle. a healthy way of life that you've adopted yeah. and it's no longer a diet. Sure. Okay. And so I look at recovery the same way is that early on I'm in recovery. I am practicing a new way of life that I'm not familiar with, but eventually it becomes a way of life and I'm no longer actively in recovery. I've recovered and now I live a healthy way of life. Yeah. And for me, that's what makes sense. Yeah. Again, I'm not like if somebody else needs to change the words, it is semantics. Yeah. Like if, if you saying you're in recovery still works for you, then rock on. Yeah. Uh, it just, I couldn't buy that. And this one works for me. Yeah, no, that's good. Good. That's a good point. And I like that. Uh, I like that metaphor. I think that's, uh, I was just telling someone today that, um, not everybody can identify with using hardcore drugs. More, more people can identify with maybe having a little bit too much to drink, but everybody can identify with making changes to their diet. And I think that's a great, uh, that's a great example. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I actually got a bunch of stuff like that in in the book is, is all just, references that people can grab onto that have nothing to do with addiction. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> what, uh, so, so what ended up happening? So he, he kind of walked you through and, and so what did your recovery look like early on and what does it look like today? So, you know, he gave me options, you know, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, you know, I, my focus was on going through the steps. Uh, my focus was on, um, healing as a person. And so when I worked with my sponsor, it was primarily step work. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't go to meetings. Um, I wasn't looking for the fellowship. I was looking for the recovery associated with the 12 steps. Um, you know, when I say he gave me options, I had a lot of other things going on in my life. I was a member of the Freemasons, um, I w- which was a good fellowship for sure. me. Um, I was also part of like a ridiculous amount of, um, you know, coalitions and, you know, other groups. And so, you know, he said, if you have a fellowship, if you have a group, if you have access to those things, then then you don't need to seek out the fellowship of AA unless you want to. He said, my job is to take you through the steps. My job is to get you well. And so that's what we did. And so my, my focus was on the steps. My focus was on that personal journey for healing, not so much the the fellowship. And, sure. and the reason I, the reason I talk about the two as two different things is because they are, you know, I, I, the way it was explained to me and the way I've come to understand it was that, you know, AA was born uh, with the meetings, AA meetings were born as a support group for pe- either people who had done the 12 steps or people who needed to do the 12 steps. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, it got divided. And, you know, I, I, I began to see two different versions of that uh, um, group. I began to see a version where one was solution based. Chapter two, there is a solution. Twelve step big book study groups. You know, people would show it, show up to those meetings or CA people show up to those meetings. They read from the book. They talk about the steps and they talk about the progress they're making or the progress they want to make or they're inspiring others to make that same progress. And then there were the open discussion meetings, the more raw um, meetings where out of 30 or 40 people, 
you might have people with two, three, five, 10, 15, 30 years of abstinence, but a very small amount of them were in recovery through the steps. Sure. Um, they were what you might call a dry drunk, uh, somebody that's just holding on through sheer willpower and fighting every day to stay sober. And I didn't want that. Um, I didn't want a daily fight to stay sober. And the way it was explained to me was that if I was able to do the steps, it wouldn't be a daily fight to stay sober. I would be released um, from the desire. Sure. Um, I would be released from the obsession. And that's the one I worked for. So I spent more of my time focused on the solution uh, rather than the fellowship. Yep. Not that the fellowship isn't a, an amazing benefit for somebody. Um, I just didn't need it as a part of my process. Yep. And Got that. I encourage others who need it. Um, I don't I don't try to dissuade people from from choosing that path or even encourage them just to focus on the steps. But I do encourage people that if they're going to go, it's kind of like, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm hanging out at the barbershop. Okay. Did you get a haircut? No, no, no. I just, I kind of go there every day and I talk to the barber and I watch other people get their haircuts. Pretty cool. And, you know, I would encourage them maybe to consider getting a haircut. Uh, you know, like if you go into those meetings, the big, Oh, have you done the steps? Yeah. I saw them on the wall. Mm. Have you considered doing them? You know what I mean? Like, you know, it, it might actually be the reason you're at that meeting is to engage someone and do those do those steps. Yeah. I also think it's probably important, too, that you had the background you had. You were already in the business of you right. know, giving hope to people. You were already around people that were, um, you know, uh, productive member of society through the Freemasons and other variations. And so, um you know, I always say, if you want to be a plumber, you got to hang around with plumbers and that can be, mm -hmm. you know, that can be anything I, I needed. You know, I was, I was 21 for a month when I got sober. I mean, I didn't even know what it was like to drink legally. <laughs> and so I needed, um, you know, everybody that I knew, uh, drank heavily, used drugs. And if you didn't, you were square or some born again, I didn't want to hang around with you. And so I didn't have, I needed that group of people um to to show me how to live and yes of course there are the people that um you know have done the work at the, the the steps and service and some people are dry and um some people do the steps once and don't need to do them again and some people kind of consistently do them over a period of time because they're addressing the behaviors and the defects as opposed to the drugs and alcohol and and you know here's another thing sweets that i think is important to point out is a lot of people in the rooms are under the impression that if you're not in the rooms, that means that you're not in recovery. In other words, they, they make the assumption flippantly and say mm -hmm. either, oh, well, they must not have been an alcoholic. They must not have been a real alcoholic or maybe they're using yeah. or, you yeah. know, this is the only way. And for some people, it is the only way. But what I would. What I try, and, and this just comes with being uh, having experience for uh, over a long period of time, is that not everybody has their traditional recovery path. Uh, again, going back to this idea of like, if there was only one path, uh, there would be one religion on this earth. Well, there's a reason why there's right. not. If there if there was only one path, there'd be only one twelve step fellowship, and it would work every time. But it doesn't. So to make the assumption that if you don't go to meetings that you're not clean or that you have no recovery, it, it's very, um, uh, it's very short-sighted. So it, it's good to hear, you know, your perspective, because I, I know mm -hmm. that not everybody have the traditional path that, that 
uh, a lot of the people in my network do. So, so that's a good, good perspective. So what, what happened after that? So you worked the steps, you were involved with mm-hmm. your company. What, what, what happened after mm-hmm. that? So, um, you know, just, just to go back, I just want to kind of piggyback on what you were just saying too, is that, uh, you know, that if there was just one body type, there'd be only one diet, but there's not, there's so many different body types, yeah. so many different ways, yeah. you know, there's people who are, uh, um, just gifted, uh, <laughs> you know, metabolically, uh, that their metabolism is just, you know, super fast. So like, oh, all you got to do is cut out bread and you lose 50 pounds. It's not works. It doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. I think but that's, I right. think that's what makes it complicated, uh, particularly yeah. for mental health and addiction is because when you open the book, uh, the medical journals or the medical books about the heart, uh, your heart or your brain or your lungs, like whether you're here in America, in France or Australia, the continuum of care for the heart is pretty much the same. Um, the continuum of care for the lungs are pretty much the same for the circulatory Mm -hmm. system, pretty much the same. But when it comes to mental health and addiction or diet, it goes, well, it depends, you know, (laughs) everything is, well, it depends. And I think going back to, the ability to get treatment uh, from insurance companies, from the medical system, from, you know, in ways that doesn't cost you an arm and a leg is that, well, it depends, keeps the solution gray and allows yeah. it to be more difficult for people to get help. It's, it's just. Well, I think I think you're also asking the wrong community for a solution. Like if you're asking the medical community for a solution to a spiritual slash emotional problem, they don't have it. They're like, yeah, it depends on the person, yeah. the degree of their spiritual issues or emotional issues or psychological issues. You're, there's no medical solution to that. Whereas when it comes down to the heart, it's not debatable. It's yeah. a heart. It requires this. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. It's just yeah. a heart. You know, this is a lung. It does these things. It requires this. But when you get into uh, obsession and compulsion, the person matters. Yeah. Like they're, they're where they're from, what their family history, like all that stuff comes into consideration. And the medical community doesn't have a textbook solution for that. Yeah. Just for the most part. I think it's uh, also uh, medical- interesting, too, is our, our, our doctor in, a, in Philadelphia was a Chinese medicine doctor. And we've always used Chinese medicine chiropractic first. Not I'm. Mm-hmm. I am 100%. If I get, you know, if I have a stroke or a heart attack or cut my arm off, you better believe I want to rely on, on the, the benefits of Western medicine. But what's kind of crazy is, is that if you want to pursue a more natural um, uh, health care, like uh, Chinese medicine and, and, and meditation, and chiropractic, you got to pay out of pocket for that, which is astronomically expensive. But if you oh, want to yeah. go down the path of, of uh, you know, prescription drugs and surgeries, boy, they'll write checks for that like it's going out of style. And I think just like with that, uh, with that topic, the answer is somewhere in the middle. It needs to be we need to be able to have access to holistic care and acute Western medicine care. We need to have access to the medical side of mental health and addiction and the spiritual and emotional side. And it all needs to be covered. And I think that we're we're 10 to 20, maybe even 30 years away from being able to have your son, daughter, wife, whoever have a mental health and addiction issue to be able to walk in the door at any hospital and to have multiple options, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to therapy, um, uh, EMDR therapy, the, the suite meditation, all paid for 12 step, all covered. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but we're we're just so far, and I think well, that's again. Once again, we're fighting the words evidence based. I mean, that's what we're yeah. fighting against, yeah. right? Like we're, yeah. that's the word that defines what gets paid for. Is it's evidence based? Yeah. Well, it's outcomes based. Well, yeah. Who's measuring the outcomes? What's the evidence? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. So, um, so uh, go ahead. I'll just answer your question that you had asked. Like, what what came next? Um, you know, once I. As far as my recovery goes from that point forward, it was just, uh, you know, practicing and, and learning to live that new way of life and getting comfortable in my own skin and learning how to navigate real world problems without using drugs and alcohol as a solution. And so that became my every day. And to be honest with you, um, at this point, it feels like breathing. Um, and by that, I mean, I don't really think about it that much. It's just, it feels natural to tell the truth. It feels natural to be accountable it feels natural to feel feelings and not be overwhelmed by them it feels it feels natural to be vulnerable or it feels natural to just be yeah and you know that obviously takes time i mean as you said before it takes a certain type of person and at the time i did have a lot of uh uh uh, contributing factors to that that motivated me i was in a different place i I would honestly say i'm i wasn't I wasn't your average person on Suboxone trying to get well. I had other motivators uh, driving me forward. But, you know, because of those things, I was able to accomplish what I accomplished. And, you know, because of my recovery, I was able to um, really put a lot of good pieces into my life. Uh, My children, put them back in after a couple of years. Uh, My family, you know, started bringing them into the company so they could see what I was doing. Um, a few years ago, changed the company from Renewed Hope to Bay State Recovery Services because I brought in a business partner, uh, one of the first people that I worked with and got into treatment. John, he uh, came back and kind of mentored underneath me and learned about the business and the industry and interventions. And uh, I brought him on as a 50-50 partner. And you know, he, now he runs the, the Men's Sober Living and I run all the family services and trainings. And um, it's just turned into... You know, I mean, I, let's, I'm 43 years old, so for almost 30 years now, my life has always been about drugs and alcohol, and it seems <laughs> like at this point it always will be. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In one way or another, uh, using them, doing them, selling them, helping people get off of them, talking about them, writing about them, listening to people talk about them, um, training people to talk to other people about it. Like, it, this is drugs and alcohol is my life. So, um, you know, it's not just, it's not just the steps that brought me to where I am today. It's what came after the steps. Like I see a lot of people reach a a recovery ceiling, if you will, like, you know, they're out sponsoring people and like, I did it. I'm like, okay, cool. So you got back to zero. Now you're starting fresh and now you've got to build a life on that foundation. And it's kind of like watching somebody go into the woods and dig a hole and build a foundation and like, whew, thank God I'm done. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, now you can put a house on there, but you just have a foundation. Sure. Um, And, you know, I think the foundation of the steps is what I stand on, what I built my house on, what I built my family on. And I only I only look at it that way because I know it's solid. It's it's based on actions that I took, um, you know, spiritual and emotional and psychological progress that I made. So I know it's solid. And that's why I was able to build a house on it and, and build my family and that stuff. So. All these things that I put in place afterward, I think, are what have me feeling the way I feel today and being able to face life the way I can today. Um, but I'm grateful for the steps because they were part of my journey. And, um, you know, they they really gave me, I guess I would say, the courage 
to aspire for more than just being a 50 year old retiree shooting heroin on a boat in Florida. Yeah. That makes sense. What, um, what, so tell me about what is your, um, what is your daily, uh, process like, or maybe, um, you know, over the last couple of years, what your, um, what your daily recovery looks like. Do you have mentors or support groups that you talk to? Do you have counselors and uh, therapists that you use on occasion? What is it, what does it look like? And, and the re- the reason I'm asking is mm-hmm. um, it's beneficial that you're in the business. So you're always in and around it, but yep. you know, for me left in my own devices, um, I am typically driven by, fear and security, some sort of uh, deep-seated self-worth, even though I know how to dress it up in different ways. Uh, Mm -hmm. I got to watch out for my ego because, boy, I think I know a lot and I know what's best. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, it's important to me to have people that I run stuff by that I'm, um, you know, that I have things that I do with my wife uh, for our marriage, etc. You know, I don't make, you know, I go to uh, I've actually been finding a, actually, as a matter of fact, thanks to Megan and, and the addictionary podcast, I found ACA and that was like, a that just took me to a whole nother deeper level of nice. family recovery, which has been uh, uh, quite helpful for me to what does your daily look like? And what do you kind of recommend like the maintenance to look like for your, for your people with some, with a bit of a foundation under them? So, um, all right. So a couple different things. I guess it's, it's multi-layered. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, if, if I look at the kind of the residuals from my 12 step work, um, I pray at night um, and I choose to pray at night because regardless of the day, I try to force myself to have gratitude, practice gratitude, even on a, even on a tough day. And, and my prayers are thank you. Uh, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the struggle. Thank you for this day. Um, and so I'm, I, it's easy for me to be grateful in the morning. I'm breathing. It's a clean slate. Thank you for this new whiteboard. Like I, I felt like, you know, when they're like, get on your knees in the morning and pray, I was like, I did, but I felt disingenuous. Like, cause then at the end of the night, I'd go to bed with some resentments and stuff. And so, you know, I found for me, I pray at night. Um, and I, and it's, it's a ritual. I do it every night. I've, I've never not done it. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the last 10 years and, so that's my that's the residuals from my steps is that every single night I face my day and I face it with gratitude and I find a way to reconcile uh, with myself. And that's kind of like my evening 10th step, if you will. Sure. And uh, so that's my those are the residuals from my 12 steps. I, I don't go to meetings. I don't really interact with my sponsor much. I mean, that's kind of like hanging out with your painter after they painted the house. Like, yeah, you can be friends, but like my house is already painted. So <laughs> you know, thank you. Appreciate that. Sure. Um, but you know, I, you said it yourself, like me being in the industry, you know, there's, there's the professional relationships that I have, which mm-hmm. are pretty cool. Um, but as a, as a trainer, I have a lot of students that I mentor, um, as a professional, I have a lot of colleagues that I've become friends with. Um, and like I mentioned before, John was one of the first people that I got into treatment and he became a friend. Um, so I find that I have a lot more personal individual relationships open honest relationships with other people with solid recovery that are in this industry that have become my soundboard um you know they've become my accountability network people that you know i call and i'm like man i'm having a really weird day today like i'm feeling pretty fearful um you know this is what's going on 
you know, I, I have a, uh, you know, the Freemasons is obviously something that's been useful in the past. I don't go as much anymore. Um, I did create a little men's group in my area and, uh, it's not for people in recovery. It's for anybody. And so, you know, it's really more about just kind of talking about what life has to offer, not just as it relates to recovery, but like normal fears and insecurities. Cause like every fear and insecurity I have is not directly related to my addiction. People have fears and insecurities. Like that's a normal thing. Sure. I don't have to connect them all to my addiction. Like, it's normal to be insecure. Yeah. It's normal to have an ego. It's normal to get to trip over your own pride sometimes. Yeah. It's normal to have anxiety or worry about things. It's just, when is it becoming a problem? Yeah. And so, you know, new relationships are tough for me. I've never been in a healthy one. I'm in the first healthy one ever in my entire life right now. <laughs> I mean, I heard, I don't I heard have... you talking about that on the last podcast. Yeah. I, I'm interested to hear, hear, uh, as you as you navigate this well you know i mean um uh, let's see it's like eight or nine months in and i'm already in therapy so i mean there's that <laughs> uh, I, well I'll, t- that... I'll tell you this this is something that's been and i and i'd be happy to talk to you about it um you know off the pod at any point in time is you know one of the things that have been extremely valuable in my uh wife and i's relationship is We've utilized count, uh, marriage counseling multiple times, not that we we're on the v- verge of divorce, but because we needed a third party and we needed help. We knew that we know that this most of the time we know that this is a relationship we want to be in and we just need someone to help us see that most of the time we're on the same page. We're just missing. Um, she's also in her recovery. Is she in, in her own recovery and she wasn't always in recovery. She kind of found that path on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also, I quite, I'm quite fond of couples meetings and stuff like that, where we can go in and talk about couples type stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and like I said, my wife didn't even, she didn't even go to any kind of anything for, I think the first two to three years of us being together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, one of my mentors says, you know, in any long-term relationship, you're going to have hard issues to face and you got two choices. You can either face them together and learn, or you can go find another one. But the problem is you're going to find another long-term relationship. <laughs> and in any long-term relationship, you're going to have to have, you're going to have issues that you're going to have to I face. Like, I like that, man. Yeah. Like and that. so I think it's just kind of the same type, you know, like here's the other thing. Anybody can catch, but can you hold, you know, mm-hmm. catching's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, new is fun. Quitting mm-hmm. and starting over is fun and easy, but can you hold? And that's where, you know, you have a history, a foundation of how to um, of how to hold on to stuff in a relationship. Not only is it no different, but it's harder. And so uh, yeah. anyway, it's just it's just good to hear. And I kind of laugh, uh, you know, at it because, yeah, the minute I think I know something, boy, do I get myself in trouble, particularly. Oh, yeah. Well, you made a point earlier and I thought this was good is like, you know, the idea of the stigma around mental health and substance abuse and stuff like that, that, you know, people, you should be able to just go get a therapist because like, you know, you just want to work on a couple of things, not because your life is falling apart. You don't go see, you don't go see a a personal trainer because you're about to die. You go so you can make some adjustments in your daily routine. Like, you know, I think you like going to a marriage counselor or a couples counselor is a good educational tool for people who care about their relationship, even if it's not falling apart. Like 100%. I'm going to see a therapist because 
I jumped into this relationship and realized I brought a bag with me that was full of some stuff I didn't want to bring. Yeah. And I care about this person. I'm like, damn, I probably shouldn't hand that bag over. So <laughs> I'm going to go see a therapist and work on these things so they don't negatively impact my relationship. Not because like we came to a head and she's like, if you don't, then this it's yeah. like, and, and I think that's, that's the difference between whether or not it's going to be effective is did yeah. I want to go or am I going because she told me I have to. Yeah. hundred percent. So I, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out what a healthy relationship looks like. I got no benchmark. Yeah, I get um, that. You know, that's one thing. And, and uh, this, this will lead me to the next topic, which I'm extremely passionate about is, you know, the name of this podcast is called the high cost of anonymity. And, and my argument for that is that although I respect traditions and privacy and I'm talking uh, mental health and recovery, drug and alcohol recovery, I respect privacy. But if people don't know that you have a vast amount of experience in either drug and alcohol addiction and recovery or a history of mental health, suicidal ideations, et cetera. If your neighbors, your community, the people you don't, that, that you work with, if they don't know you're a resource, they're stuck calling an 800 number, trying to sort through the minutia of insurance in the medical industry and the medical industry or the insurance industry continues to not uh, pay for things and not make right. it easy. And so, um, you know, where do you stand on, uh, you know, you're breaking your anonymity or sharing your experience, strength and hope uh, with people uh, letting them know that, Hey, I got a counselor. It's great. I do it not because I'm uh, desperate, but because I want to get better. Hey, I used to have a problem with drugs and alcohol. And now I'm like this, where do you stand on that? And how can we maybe move the needle forward to make it um, more comfortable and maybe normalize this, even just down to personal development, even if you don't have a drug and alcohol or mental health issue, but to make it normal and cool and hip to have a counselor, a therapist or support group where you go to better yourself. Boy, what a great question. I mean, you know, I, I, I take the word first anonymity, you know, and where it fits into Alcoholics Anonymous is that, you know, the thirties were a different time. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like it's 2000, it's 2020. Um, anonymity is not like a real thing anymore like i think that i think that that was built on the the existing shame and stigma um that was around alcoholism and that it was seen as such a, a thing of weakness um that a lot of people were ashamed and they wanted the ability to go and do this anonymously because they were so full of shame and well, and I think, too, I will make, a, you know, the argument for there were repercussions back then that if you were yeah. found out to have that and, and the drug addicts had an even harder time. And I would even argue like I do respect the principle of anonymity, and I think that they make some really good points. And I think it has its place even still today. I think it have its place. But I think that part of the reason there is still a stigma and now loop in mental health because we know a lot more about it. Part of the reason is, is that many people misinterpret anonymity to set, to think like, sure, I don't come out and say, hey, sweets, nice to meet you. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I represent. <laughs> re and let me tell you about we don't we don't necessarily do that. We shouldn't do that. And I get it. And I shouldn't go on TV and say I'm a member and I'm representing and speak for. But but to to have someone find out that I'm an addict in recovery to have someone find out that 
we have a history of mental health, uh, you know, deep within our family and we have some solution to have them find out after they come out of a hospital, when they end up in a, in a 12 step room and a meeting, or they have to, they're struggling with, you know, wanting to commit suicide and they're my neighbor and they don't realize that I actually have been there and have a solution. I am failing the community. I'm failing my neighbor. I'm failing my workforce. I'm failing, um, everybody out there that has a, you know, that has someone struggling and struggling themselves. I just think uh, so many people misinterpret it, but I do agree. We're at different times, but it's still a freaking Sigma suites. But, but, but the thing here is that I think we're talking about two different things. I think we're talking about privacy and I think we're talking about anonymity in the, in, in the recovery community. And like, yes, I respect privacy. I respect HIPAA. I believe that, if you're struggling with a, a, a medical condition, regardless of what it is, substance abuse, mental health, physical or otherwise, that you have the right to choose who finds out about that. 100%. Okay? I agree. And, and so that's the privacy side of things where I get wrapped up in the whole anonymity thing is that, like you were saying before, there were real repercussions for people who, um, you know, if it was found out that they were struggling with alcohol or drug use that it could completely disrupt their life. But that in itself is the problem. The fact that anonymity needs to exist in order to protect people from having consequences for a medical condition is the problem. And if that's why anonymity is required, I don't like anonymity for that reason, because the solution to it is to stop being anonymous and start being more vocal about it so that the, 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 the society can see that this is a more, this is a more common problem the solution is available. People are getting well and they are your neighbors. They are your friends. They might even be your doctor. They could be the police officer that just saved your life. They could be the pilot that's flying your plane. The stigma exists, which means that anonymity is required. Yeah. And somewhere in the middle is one has to give either anonymity has to break in order to break the stigma or stigma needs to break to release people from the need for anonymity. Yeah. Not that they don't deserve the privacy if they want to, but the need for anonymity is because if someone finds out, they will be judged. There will be shame. There could be physical, financial or psychological repercussions if it comes out without them knowing. So, like, yeah, there's a balance in there. And I don't know which one needs to break first, but they are directly connected. Yeah. And I think, too, Sweets, that, um, you know, one question that I ask a lot is where is the line? Because I also agree that if we're if what is true, which is true, that what we're talking about is the average addict and alcoholic goes to treatment four to four to eight times before they get it. Um, You know, the, the average person relapses quite a bit. The amount of people that are trying to navigate recovery by saying how little do i have to actually change to quit getting the results that i get i'm not saying someone with three months sober should be out advocating for for recovery i'm not saying that the you know second grade teacher that gets a dwi should be out and about saying oh i'm in recovery this and that but at some point and i feel somewhere around two years for me and and maybe it's longer maybe it's less But like at some point when you get into some solution, you're in some stability, you found some solution. um, I'd like to teach you how to share that in a productive, open way. You know, I like you to 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 teach people be like a fisher of men where you're just kind of, you know, kind of casting the hook out and saying, hey, Mm -hmm. by the way, you know, I've got experience with uh, 
mental health and addiction uh, recovery. You know, if you ever need any help or someone's struggling in your life, let me know. I can help them. And I'm just a fisher of men and waiting for someone to say, actually, what did you say? I've got a cousin or what did you say? I'm actually struggling. It's not, hey, let me recruit you and, and tell you all about, you know, 12 step fellowship, et cetera. And I just think that I don't know. It's definitely not the only way, but this conversation, this is why I'm so passionate about having these conversations is this is one of the ways that's going to move the solution forward. Because if we can share with the average person that, you know, quote unquote, we're responsible, productive members of society and they go, really, you did that. Wow. Mm -hmm. I didn't, man, I only thought brown bag, you know, heroin users did that. Or I only thought homeless people were drug addicts or, you know, even my wife, she struggled with uh, suicide out of the blue after being in recovery for a long, long time it's for people to, and she's really open. So for people to go, damn, you look like you got your shit together. You also struggle with depression and suicide. Wow. It just, it gives me permission by you Mm -hmm. telling your story. It gives me permission to say, you know what? Me too. I I feel insecure. You, you know, me too. I, I don't know how to navigate a relationship. I just think that there's so much power in story and so many people are terrified, even if it's not about drug addiction or mental health, they're mm-hmm. terrified to share some of their their uh, their shortcomings or their. Uh, but I think that there's also a way to do it to be productive and not victimy, whining, uh, blaming the establishment and insurance and medical the medical system. I, I don't. Yeah. There's a fine line between being a victim and being comp- a complainer and yeah. being a responsible, productive member that's trying to move the conversation forward. I agree. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, that's, um, that, that's in, um, I I don't know. I just think that there's, there's just a conversation to be had. And and it sounds to me like you, you talk about it quite a bit. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, it probably, it probably doesn't come up as much for me as it does for you. Cause I mean, this is the focus of your, your podcast and it's just that I I have feelings about it and I guess I don't have enough of an opportunity to share my feelings. And this was one of the first opportunities I've had to really, expresses is that you know i agree with you i don't want everybody that is early in recovery to 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 go out and talk about i don't think anybody that is in recovery should have to talk about it if they don't want to but the fact that in order for them to say it a lot of them say it looking down at the ground or they say it you know sheepishly because they're afraid of what someone else might think that bothers me you know and that's the part that i think it's not that anonymity is bad anonymity is great the need for anonymity is bad the fact that it's it needs to exist to protect people from other people judging them that's bad and that's the part i think needs to go away is not necessarily anonymity it's a great safe place to hide in the beginning while you're all freaked out and you get stabilized and you create a foundation and you're like and then after a couple of years you're like yeah you know now i can tell my story now i'm comfortable enough to say i was instead of i am Um, and, or I, I went through this instead of I'm going through this and I promise it'll be different or, you know, another 30 days sober, let me tell you all about it, but it's the need it's that it, it, it exists and that there's a need for it because so many people don't understand it. And when people hear it, for some reason, they automatically see it as something else. Um, and, and that, that's the part that bothers me is that it's, that it's needed in the first place. I agree. Tell me, uh, um, Tell me about the difference in uh, 
about some of the medically assisted treatments. You talked to quite a bit about Suboxone. I know, I think mm-hmm. Sublocate is an injection. Methadone, yep. I've heard is just, you know, I, I had a buddy that, um, you know, that same guy that's, um, he's totally functioning. He's got a business, you know, most mm-hmm. people think he's got a shit together, but I'm just, you know, he's kind of at some point I'm like, look, you're not going to quit everything. Why don't you just go find and get on uh suboxone or some sort of replacement? And his insurance says we'll cover methadone, but we won't cover suboxone. And I'm like, what kind of planet are we on that they're still prescribing freaking methadone, which seems so antiquated which tell me a little bit about what you know about methadone and maybe some of the other because if we're talking medically assisted i am more Mm -hmm. of a fan of an of a long-term injection anything that i got to take every day well you better believe i'm going to have a hard time or manipulate the dosage kind of like what you were talking about tell me a little bit more about that what you know about the injectables versus like a methadone or something like that which just seems so freaking old school so you know i had a pretty um simple understanding of methadone for a very long time. I was just like, well, they're just giving people opiates. I don't get it. You know, it's just liquid handcuffs, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had all the same um, information that everybody else had because we were all just sharing it. You know, it rots your bones. You're not sober, all this other stuff. And so to get to the bottom of it, I said, you know, why don't I have somebody from a methadone clinic? So I had the director of a local methadone clinic come to my office and I said, I need you to explain it to me. And uh, I'm like, why do you use it? How does it work? What is your treatment plan? Like, why do you believe in this so much that you run a methadone clinic? And not in a skeptical way or cynical way. Just just tell me because educate me. My, my, so, my, my first reaction is going, you're acting, asking a drug dealer to tell him why, tell him why you're a drug dealer, but go on. Him, yeah, I mean, that's up. that's what it is. I'm like, dude, you run this program. Like, can you t- like you seem like a normal person. You seem educated. You've been in this field. You're in recovery. I'm like, can you tell me why you work there and why you believe in it so much? Because you must. Something feels so icky about some things. It's like, I mean, I don't know if you've seen The Pharmacist on Netflix, but holy smokes. Oh, my God. I love that. Dude. But some of those medically, some of those methadone clinics, suboxone clinics, they look exactly like those freaking pill mills. It's the same shit. So anyway, go, go on. Tell me what this guy says. So, so I had him get up on my whiteboard and I said, uh, break it down for me, man. I'm like, just, you know, write it in crayon for me and help me understand. And basically what he said is that, you know, kind of like I said earlier, somebody comes in on opiates. Um, they've been using and abusing opiates or opioids for a long time. And so their natural opiate level has been depleted there. There's a chemical imbalance in there now. Their body stopped producing certain chemicals. Um, because they've been synthetically providing these chemicals in their body for so long. So the body said, we don't need to make them anymore. Uh, the body created so many more receptors to, to, to attach these chemicals to that. Now they have more receptors than their body could produce for chemicals. Meaning that if they stop using opiates, they're going to go through a long depressive state because their body is going to take time to acclimate to this new lower dose of chemicals that the body produces and the higher need of all these receptors that their body now has. Sure. And so he said, what we do is we provide methadone to synthetically adjust that level. And he said, so when we provide methadone, we create a dose, which is that we meet that, that level that's necessary. And then we, once we find that dose, we provide a maintenance dose. And I said, all right, well, I get that. That makes, it makes sense. I don't know if I agree with it, but it makes sense. 
But that's not that the same as Suboxone, though, right? Well, it's the same as all MAT. Those, yeah, those, those, true, any, true. any any synthetic opiate is designed to do exactly what I'm telling you right yeah, now. Yeah, gotcha. And so then I said, all right, so now what's the exit plan? This is where things got weird. And uh, so mm-hmm. I said, all right, well, to explain this exit plan to me. I'm like, so how do you know when to stop giving them methadone? And how do you know when their natural opiate level or whatever you're saying exists in there? How do you know when that is no longer depleted? You've done your job and it's time to back out. And then how do you do it? And this is it was just funny. He said, um, well, we talked to them about how they feel. And if they're feeling <laughs> good. If they're feeling good, then that means it's working. And if we try to take them off of it and they say they don't feel good, then we give them more methadone. And I was like, hold, <laughs> hold on a second. I'm like, hold on. He said, so, so there's no like blood test or drug test or like chemical analysis that you can do to determine if what you're doing is working. You base your outcomes and your evidence for this treatment plan on the word of an active addict who's now on your drug and if they say they feel bad they'll get more of your drug and if they say they're doing good they'll get less of your drug this dude this was one of the funniest conversations i heard dr drew talk about is he goes here because he he feels he always fights against the medical community which he calls his people is uh he goes these people don't know like they they trust their patients he goes they don't understand a drug addict's lie. He said, you have to assume everybody's lying all the time. You can't yes. trust what your addict patient is saying. You just, yes. you get so fired up about it. Yes. It's like the pain scale. We can't measure pain. It's like, you mean, how, what's your pain level? It's an eight. Oh, well, I can't debate, you know, and, yep. and actually I can go to jail if I debate your pain level. It's the same right. kind of a thing. But anyway, I always just, now when, now that I'm sober, when I go in and they're like, what's your pain level? I'm like, what pain level gets me drugs? <laughs> yeah right exactly. what are you what are you trying to ask me yeah but exactly. the uh you know that that's that's where i got kind of lost in this whole thing is when he started to say that it's like all right we base our whole treatment plan on how they tell us they feel and the exit plan is non-existent you know they can stay on it indefinitely if that's what's working for them and basically it's like if we give them our drug and it's working we won't stop giving them our drug because it's working yeah that's the math. And, yeah, you know, I, sense, man. I, I have to say that my opinion on it isn't that it's a bad drug or that it doesn't work. My opinion is that it's being misused, misrepresented as a solution to a problem that it can't solve. I think the people who are prescribing it don't understand it. I think it was designed. All of them were designed without an exit plan. I think the pharmaceutical yes, industries that, that are pushing it. Yeah are profiting from it. I think the industry that's pushing it is profiting from it. The doctors make money off of it. The methadone clinics make money off of it. The pharmaceutical companies that provide it make money off of it. We live in a capitalist country. It would be weird to think that there's not a financial agenda between keeping people on the medication and taking them off. It, it, it couldn't. You couldn't tell me that that doesn't exist. And so since that exists, then the best the best result for the client is not the primary objective. It can't be if finances are involved yeah it can't be you know and look and, and I'll, I'll tell you th- th- this isn't the best argument for uh because i, I think that i am uh, part of my bias usually leads our conversation in the direction that you and i typically go to which is 
skeptical hippo eyes to point us to get off. But, you know, if um, not only did the my buddy's boss who said, look, I don't give a shit what you say, whether you say he's clean or not, but I got my son back, touche. Right. Um, I had a one lady d- did a great presentation and her dad had 38 years in AA and she's got the doctorate and she goes, you know, she had a lady, a girl that um, talking to a bunch of therapists and uh, she had someone die on her. And the, 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 the dad came in and said, you know, she thought she was going to get sued, but she said, you know, you had a drug that you could have given my daughter that, you know, she wouldn't have OD'd and you didn't give it to her. And at the end of the, the presentation, she said to a bunch of ther- master-level therapists, she said, what would y'all recommend for this girl? She's been using heroin for three years. Uh, this is her uh, second time in rehab. She had a small stint with a bit of prostitution, but um, for the most part, she wasn't doing anything else. What would y'all recommend? And they go, uh, do some, uh, some, uh, some residential and some IOP. Some people would say PHP and IOP, but not anybody said Suboxone. And then she said this was the girl that OD'd. Um, and so as a parent, if I have an option and I don't know anything about recovery, maybe if I do to say, if I'm if if my son takes this this pill and has a lower chance of over o- overdosing, mm-hmm. I would be hard pressed to go. You know what? Don't give him the pill, mm-hmm. you know, because because also I know how hard it is for most people. Uh, and we're just so happy to talk about opiates now because that's all the rage. And a bunch of white people died. But but uh, but like I would have a hard time as a parent going, yeah, let's push them to ab- total abstinence. It's a it's a hard, it's, a, it's almost like going, you've got cancer. Do you want to cure it with diet and all natural? Or do you want to take chemo? I'm like, you know what? I'm a little scared. I don't know if the natural way is going to do it. Maybe I'll opt for the chemo. There, there is an argument for that, uh, you know, for that way. If, if, if my son has a lower chance of ODing, I might have a hard time saying, don't take it. What do well, you think about that's that what, perspective? Well, I mean, that's what it's come down to is that you've got a bunch of gun shy therapists and prescribers and clinicians that are scared that if they don't prescribe it or if they don't recommend it, that somebody might die. And the reality is, is that addiction kills people. And so now we have something that can stop people from dying. And that's where I get that's where the struggle lies, is that, you know, the pill is not a solution. The pill is only to treat the symptom and keep them alive. If they do nothing else while they're on it, they won't get well. So yeah. it does temporarily relieve the temporarily relieve the symptoms, just like opioids do. Like if you have pain, I can give you opioids so that you don't have pain, but I can't treat the reason why you have pain with opioids. Yeah, just the, that's the thing. And so you're right; it is going to keep people alive. I would never say don't do it. I would say try it. But if you can't use it effectively, if you can't use it correctly, if you're diverting your medication, or if you're still using other substances then that particular path is not working for you. And we have to find another one. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's my opinion on it. It's, it's anecdotal. Yeah. It's not clinical. It's just my personal experience sprinkled in with some of my professional experience and what I've seen, but you're, you're right. I mean, or at least that's what I see is that we have, we're in an area right now where because of so many overdoses and because it's happening to so many people and because of fentanyl and all these other things that have mixed in, it's seen as if you don't prescribe it, it's irresponsible. If you don't yeah. recommend it or if you speak up against it, it's irresponsible because they could yeah. die. And I think and that's- I think you, I think you bring, bring up a good point too is because a lot of times 
you know, in a, in a lot of ways, it's it's we're playing defense. It's basically like right. prescribe this, and they have a lower chance of dying. It's not going to fix the overarching issue, but at least they won't die. And um, and it's easy to talk about that when we're using a whiteboard and we're seeing numbers on a page. But it's a whole different story when we're talking about our husbands, our wives, our daughters, our kids. And, you know, there's a there's a good argument for like, well, shit, I don't care if we're not addressing the roots. I want my son to be here and I want him on it. But isn't um, that a double edged sword, though? Like if 100 percent. If you take a, cause I, I know what it led, I know what led me and drove me to stay sober and go through the steps, which was desperation. A hundred percent. And I know for a fact that if you take the desperation away, I would not be well right now. Yeah, I get it. And that's the piece well, I, I think, think the, that happens is like you. Here's you, the other, here's the other argument about that sweets is so many people, particularly in the 12 step, uh crew like we all say uh you know the 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 addicts gotta uh reach its bottom you know you gotta get to their bottom it's gotta get to their bottom and it's uh, you know i think uh, megan actually has made some points with her the the book the beyond addiction and the craft mm-hmm. method and, yep. and that kind of a deal is like you know do we have to wait for them to get to their bottom are there some better ways but i guess maybe in in, in me kind of bringing that up is the answer is and it's not or it's and both not or in other words like we have to i just think we're so we're totally underestimating the amount of touch the amount of face-to-face interaction yeah the amount of heavy lifting that not only the drug addict alcoholic person struggling with mental health has to do but also the family Mm -hmm. and i just don't think that we the average person is able to get their head around how much it that actually same that same lady that was talking about that that girl who OD'd she um she has about six IOP organ uh IOP treatment centers in in Cleveland and she got a grant for four million dollars wow. and she uh rolled out this medically assisted treatment program after that girl died and she had a seventy percent seventy one percent success rate and I think it was over like a two year period but here's why she had such a high rate. And she said, I could not repeat this. I could not repeat this success rate. She did IOP five days a week. She had a paid recovery coach. See, get face to face with that uh, client every day, seven days a week. And she had a caseworker, case manager face to face with that patient every week. So, and they had to go to meetings. That's why she had such a high rate. And that's what I mean by if she didn't have that extra, she could not, that is not a sustainable business model. She couldn't, she couldn't pay case managers, recovery workers, and all their therapists to do everything they would have to do to get that rate. Yeah. uh, That success rate. And that's what's, that's what's I think hard to get most people's head around um, is that the, the treatment plan just should be so, vast you shouldn't be able to come per se get like a medically assisted treatment and say see a counselor once a week no 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 no, no. illness why are we why do we have such a cavalier approach to it like it's crazy yeah Uh, yeah it's it is it is a it is a hard one um but hey i'm we're about to run out of time here we got a two-hour limit but i want to give you an opportunity to plug your business the type of clients that you work with maybe some the type of organizations that are good good uh 
connections for you? In other words, if someone hears this and they're in the business that would complement what you do referral wise, and then also your book and anything else you want to plug, I want to give you the opportunity to just kind of give that uh, plug here at the end. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, So as I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, the company that I own is called Bay State Recovery Services. And um, I am an interventionist. I'm a certified intervention professional, um, certified through the Pennsylvania Certification Board. And um, so I work directly with families. Um, So I am the call that families make when their loved one is not ready for help, but they need something. They need someone to step in or things have gotten so bad that they need to find a way to get their loved one treatment, even though they're not quite ready for it. And so that's the specialty area that I kind of live in. And with that, I do multiple versions of interventions from your, you know, more traditional surprise model to the invitational model to at-home family contracts for young adults, adolescents, um, uh, individuals still in school. So there's a variety of different methods that are not all the, you know, TV model uh, that most people are afraid of and think is a last resort. So there's a lot of different versions there that you can step in and do something sooner rather than later. Uh, we also own a, a men's sober living called Barry's House out here in Beverly, uh, Massachusetts. And our focus there is on taking people after they've completed treatment and keeping them for about six months while they practice uh, their version of recovery and try to put their lives back together. Uh, in addition, uh, as you, you and I discussed earlier, I did author a book uh, back in uh, 2018 called Loving Lions, A Guide for Families Struggling with Addiction, which is, uh, you know, has a lot of the things that I refer to in here, like, uh, you know, the different metaphors and analogies that really help uh, someone who maybe doesn't quite understand addiction, wrap their heads around some of the crazy things that they're seeing and feeling and are are happening and maybe put themselves in the shoes of their struggling loved one. Uh, In addition, I have uh, I have my own podcast, which I do, which is called Collateral Damage. And uh, (laughs) myself and my co-host, Maureen Cavanaugh, who's also an author, uh, we we talk about all of the 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 impact uh, that addiction has in communities, the different things that are popping up to address that, um, you know, the, basically the collateral damage of addiction, not just the, the, the addiction itself. It's not a recovery based podcast. It's more focused on all the other things. Um, and uh, let's see what else. So as a professional, um, you know, I do intervention trainings, uh, trainings on how to support family systems, trainings on how to do family contracts. Uh, and these are all NADAC approved for CEs. And, you know, my goal is it always has been, as you mentioned, is to try to change the way we're doing things. And I felt like the best way to do that was to find a way, a different way to educate the next generation of professionals that are going to be touching these individuals on a daily basis. And so I do that through training uh, to try to add a new element, another tool in people's toolbox, a different perspective that someone can bring. So they don't they don't just bring the same cookie cutter in and say, why doesn't this fit? Why aren't you doing it? Why isn't it working? They should have more tools. So I've, I've spent a lot of time building these trainings and, and making them accessible. I'm actually just about to launch uh, distance learning online training for everybody across the country in the next week. So that'll, That's be, awesome. that'll be up and running. And I'll, I'll how, do, uh, how does everybody uh, find you? So BayStateRecovery.com is the best way to reach me um, or reach us. Uh, if you want to call me directly, I give out my cell phone. If you're struggling, you have a question, uh, you can reach me at 978-434-1356, and that'll get me directly. Um, you know, Or if you go on the website, send us an email, call the 800 number. Um, there's plenty of information on there. If you want to watch the podcast, it's a YouTube as well as audio. You can just look for Collateral Damage Podcast. It's available everywhere. 
If you want to buy my book, Loving Lions, I would love that. That would be great. And leave a review. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. It's not in bookstores, but it is available online everywhere, which is convenient right now because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, um, right on. And uh, all the trainings will be available on our website. Cool, man. You're the man, dude. Thank you for uh, coming on. And I really, uh, not only did I personally enjoy the conversation, but I think uh, the listeners, a lot of people in recovery, my friends, people that are in the industry could, uh, could glean a lot of valuable perspective from, from, uh, from your opinion. So man, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. This was great. I enjoyed the conversation as well. And I think, uh, I learned some stuff. I take something away from every conversation I have. So, uh, this was fun. This was educational and it was a great experience. So thank you very much.